Well, this Corinthian church was such a mess, weren't they? Uh, We have spent a lot of time with the Corinthians over the past few years, looking at the first letter and now the second letter to the Corinthians, and they just had issues. What do the kids say? They They had issues like Sports Illustrated. They had issues. They tolerated unsaved members of their church who were living in sin. They tolerated false teachers. There were a variety of sins that they just seemed to entertain rather than address in their fellowship. And this morning, as we've thought a lot of times through this series, we want to continue thinking about how we can avoid the same errors. How can we as a church avoid the errors of the Corinthian church? And I want to read over the passage again, what Tyler read for us earlier, but I'll start in verse 14. 2 Corinthians 6.14, reading through 7.1, it says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Well, in this section, it's really a shame, actually, that chapter 7, verse 1 is not chapter 6, verse 19, uh, because this section goes together. That's why we're going into chapter 7. Uh, Paul did not make those chapter breaks, so the dude who came after him messed that one up. Uh, chapter 7 should start with verse 2, really. But in this section of 6.14 to 7.1, it's really an inclusio of instruction. There's like a mirror image. 6.14 and 7.1 have the same theme in them. We have these bookend exhortations to this passage where we are told that we are not to be unequally yoked or bound together with unbelievers. And then in 7.1, we are told to cleanse ourselves from all defilement. It's the same kind of idea at the beginning and at the end of this passage. And I want us to dwell on this thought. Paul's point here in this passage is that our position, our spiritual position as Christians, should drive our practice of living. The spiritual position that we've been given as believers in Jesus Christ who are in Jesus, that should have bearing on our practice, the way that we live. Our unchanging standing that we've been given before God, that we are righteous before the holy God, that standing we've been given has to have bearing on our fickle state. You know there's a difference between your standing and your state. Your standing, as we're speaking of spiritual matters here, your standing is locked in, permanent. You are in Jesus Christ forever and ever to the glory of God. But your state, that changes quite a bit. You don't know with each day if you're going to wake up a good day or bad day. You don't know if you're going to wake up happy or wake up 
sad or angry. You don't know if you'll have a good hair day or a bad hair day. You just don't know. Your state is always in flux, but your standing is locked in. Paul talks about our standing or our position in this passage in the middle, verses 16 through 18 here of our passage. Paul talks about how we are God's temple. You see that in 16? We are the temple of the living God. God dwells in us. He walks among us. We have God as our Father, it says in this passage. This is all about our position. These are the indicatives. These are indicating what is true, what is reality, what is our spiritual reality as Christians. Therefore, he gives us some imperatives. He gives us some commands, some exhortation that have to do with our practice. Because this is true, that God is our God, that we are the temple of the living God, we are therefore to live holy lives. You see the connection there? And this is absolutely amazing with biblical Christianity, and I want to make sure this is absolutely clear. Every other religion that exists in the world puts you at the bottom of an infinite staircase and says, climb up and meet God at the top. And not only that, but it's like an escalator that's coming down at 100 miles an hour. Run up to the top, and God is up there. Exaltation is up there. Salvation is up there. Go, go, go. Work, work, work. That is every religion besides biblical Christianity. But biblical Christianity, the gospel itself, the heart of what we believe as Christians, is that God himself came down the staircase. God came down and met us at the bottom and met us in our filth, met us in the miry clay where we were stuck. And he exalted us to the heavens in Jesus. When a person believes in the finished work of Christ, that God the Son walked among us, living a perfect life, and died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. When a person believes in that and puts the full weight of his trust in Jesus for his salvation, you are immediately at the top of the staircase. Immediately in soul, in spirit, forever and ever, permanently, you are in the heavenly places exalted with Jesus Christ and no one can change that. But you're here, right? You're not like seeing the heavenly places right now. You woke up this morning and did something sinful at some point, I'm sure, right? And sometimes you just don't feel like you're there yet, and it's because you're not. So often we should feel the weight of this present world. And so we're living in that tension of positionally, our standing is with God forever, locked in because of the blood of Jesus. And yet, day by day, we are in a fallen world and we have to make choices. And these choices should reflect our position, our standing in Christ. We have these promises. You see that in 7.1, how Paul reasons to this? He says, therefore, since we have these promises, because this is true, because this, these indicatives are true, here's the exhortation. Now let us cleanse ourselves and let us perfect holiness in the fear of God. Because of these spiritual realities, our calling now is to mature in the holiness of God. And we must cleanse ourselves from all that defiles. That is the Christian's goal in sanctification. And it's not just that we're shedding the things that are bad or nasty. We are actually pursuing holiness, and in so doing, we have to drop that which is evil. As we're pursuing God in this life and as we're striving to bring righteousness to bear in our day-to-day lives, that means we have to let go of those things which are unrighteous. 
We have to be separated from those things which would hinder not only our sanctification, but our relationship with God Himself. This is a very serious issue, but look at how Paul phrases this. Again, in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Beloved. I think it's only twice in this whole letter he uses that term, beloved, to these Corinthians. They didn't act very belovedly. (laughs) They were not a church where you would naturally say, oh, you sweethearts. But Paul uses that term here, doesn't he? Beloved. And notice he also doesn't say, you need to. He says, let us. Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. He's not being accusatory here, even though he could have been. There was plenty in that Corinthian church that they were to be accused of. And he softened the charge, too, by including himself, not pointing the finger, but including himself and saying, we are all together as Christians to do this. Well, even though he softened the charge, it is still a charge, isn't it? This is a serious exhortation in the Lord that we, as believers in Jesus, are to take on the responsibility of cooperating with God from within and from without, in flesh and in spirit. Spirit has to do with that which is internal, your heart, your mind. You are to cooperate with God. You are to submit to God. You are to yield to the Holy Spirit internally from the heart. But then there's also that external impact where your behavior too, the way that you live, the way you conduct yourself, the way that you use your body in this life also has to be brought under submission to God. We get this same idea in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John 2, 28. It reads, Now little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Now that is an amazing verse. We are to abide in Christ so that at the second coming, we're not ashamed. Do you know that Jesus could come back today? Are you aware of this? So just letting you know, in case you didn't, (laughs) uh, put it on your calendar. Jesus might come back today. And so in light of that big reality, we are to abide in Him continually day by day that when we see Him face to face, we're not ashamed. I got away from the text. Let's keep reading. Next verse. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness is born of Him. And then into chapter 3, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Again, our position, our standing, this is the indicative. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Now, here's the exhortation. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. There's a desire for those who are looking forward to the coming of Christ. There's a desire for those who are children of God to be pure and a crooked, perverse, wicked generation. We should have that desire as children of God. And it's not just a desire in the heart, it's a desire that has to play out in the way that we live. Perhaps you can think of a child who just gets a new piece of clothing. A sweet little girl gets a new dress. And she's told not to get that dress dirty. 
Now, what do we know here? You've just planted in her mind <laughs> the different ways that that dress could get dirty, right? And you have now introduced all sorts of temptations because Paul did not know to covet until the law said, you shall not covet. And then all of a sudden, he was an expert at coveting, right? Well, you've told that little girl, don't get that dress dirty. Well, if you've raised little girls or little children at all, you know that stains happen. And those clothes that you want to protect, those church pants for our kids, they get grass stains, they get holes in them, all that stuff, right? Well, that little girl goes out and gets a stain on that dress. And she's heartbroken about it. And as a parent, that's sweet, isn't it? You want to see that she is sensitive toward that. But you know what else needs to happen? We've got to work on removing that stain, don't we? Now we have to work on fixing what has happened. And now we have to talk about next time how you can avoid that. It's one thing to just say you're sorry and to have remorse, but it's another thing to have your living impacted by your repentance. And Paul is calling the Corinthians to change their living based on who they are as children of God. It's one thing to feel really bad if you were a Corinthian in that day and age. It's one thing to feel really bad that Paul is hurt because you've sided with false apostles. It's a whole other thing to not only feel that way, but then to say, you know what? We're going to separate ourselves from false apostles. We're going to remove them from our church. We're going to get false teaching out of this church. We're going to purify this family of God. And that latter way is a lot more difficult. It takes a lot more work. But that is what Paul is calling these Corinthians to do, to mature in holiness. Again, chapter 7, verse 1, they are to perfect holiness or mature in holiness as they revere God. That is the same calling that we have on our lives. In 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 14, it says that as obedient children, we are not to be conformed to our former lusts, which were ours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, Peter says, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is absolutely critical as saints, those who have been called holy ones by God. It is absolutely critical that we understand the importance of pursuing holiness in this life. Later in Peter's letter, he told them this. If that, if that last passage didn't wake you up, consider this, 1 Peter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Judgment begins with us. It is time for judgment to begin with the church, with gathered Christians. Judgment begins now for us. Holiness just isn't some optional, wishful thinking idea. But Christians have been freed from the bondage of sin. Christians have been given the Holy Spirit. Christians have been given the ultimate motivation. God is our Father. We've been given so many promises that we are children of God. We are the temple of God. How important is it that we pursue holiness in this life? It is absolutely critical. It is not an option. And so with all of that in view, we have to consider again the context of 2 Corinthians where Paul is telling them that partnering with unbelievers actually defiles us. You cannot have fellowship with darkness and be holy for God. If you have fellowship with darkness... You've become defiled, and we need to cleanse ourselves from such defilement. 
partnering with unbelievers actually hinders our relationship with God. Again, let's look at verses 16 through 18. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty." You have as a promise that God is your father if you're a Christian. You are a child of God. You have that as a promise. But you are not going to enjoy free, open, true fellowship with God your father when you've been in fellowship with darkness. You have to remove that defilement from you. You have to cleanse yourself with the holiness God provides, with with what God gives us in this life to live out a holy life in order for you to feel like you have free fellowship with God. There's that one verse in 1 Peter chapter 3 where he says uh, that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way so that their prayers would not be hindered. Their relationship with God is directly affected by the existence of sin in their lives. And it's the same for every Christian. You see, we are in an age without a physical temple. We are the temple of God, as it says in verse 16. God's presence is manifested in us, both individually and corporately. In his other letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says we are indwelt individually by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's presence is manifested in us, and that presence within gives us positional holiness and also spurs us on to living it out practically. So he gives them this big idea in verse 16, we are the temple of the living God, but then he spurs them on to practical living by quoting from the Old Testament. And these are some interesting quotations. He pulls from Leviticus, he pulls from Isaiah and 2 Samuel, these verses that pertained to God's first covenant people and their temple. It says that He will dwell in them and walk among them. That is the reality for the church today, isn't it? He dwells among us. He walks among us. He is our God and we are His temple. And He calls us as those who are His people today, as fellow heirs, He calls us to come out from the midst of sinners and be separate. Verse 17. We are to be lights of the world, not hiding our light in darkness. He pulls from 2 Samuel 7, this was to Solomon or about Solomon, a prophecy that was given to David about his son that was to come after him, that God would be his father. And yet when the child would sin, God would discipline him. We have that same relationship with God. We have that same expectation on us as children of God that we would follow after Him, but we can also expect judgment and discipline when we disobey. So what are we about here in the world among unbelievers as we're stuck here in this earthly domain for now? Well, our goal is to pursue holiness while reaching the world. That is the mission of the church. We are to do that without partnering with the world. We are to remain separate from the world and pursue holiness, yet at the same time, reach the world. 
In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, that author says that we are to pursue peace with all men. As far as it depends on us, right? We get that in Romans. Pursue peace with all men. And at the same time, sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. And that just seems so difficult. Peace with all men and being separated from the world, being holy. Verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. We have to have a priority of purity in the bride of Christ, the church of God. This has to be a top priority, to have a passion for holiness. In Homer Kent's commentary, he said of this passage, These passages hold out the promise that God will act as a true father to those sons and daughters who identify themselves with him. But identification with God requires repudiation of unworthy associations that spiritually contaminate. Just like the idols in the Old Testament that people would bring into the temple, just like those idols contaminated the temple in Israel, our partnership with unbelievers as Christians today will contaminate us. We will contaminate the church if we allow the world to have influence over the bride of Christ. Perhaps you can remember reading in your Old Testament about kings Ahaz and Manasseh, and between them Hezekiah. What an interesting time, a sad time in the history of Israel and Judah. You have Ahaz, who was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah began to rule like a co-regent while his dad, Ahaz, was king in Israel. And they were ruling together, and Ahaz was a bad, bad king. Set up all sorts of false worship, had all kinds of idols that were uh, spread throughout. It was like open season with paganism in Israel. They were not set apart. They were not separate from the world. They were defiled in pretty much every way. Well, Hezekiah, seemingly waiting for his time to be king, when his dad died and he became king, he introduced a variety of helpful reforms. He got rid of the idols. He even took that, that bronze serpent that Moses held up in the wilderness, that if people looked to it, they would be healed. He took that bronze serpent and broke it into pieces before the Lord, because the people had begun to worship that too. See, the heart of man just loves to make idols. The heart of man just loves to generate false gods and even take something that's good, like that bronze serpent, and turn it into God. So Hezekiah introduced all these reforms, and largely it was a good time in Israel in that he led well. While he was still ruling and reigning, his son Manasseh began to rule for a bit. And kind of the same thing, he was waiting for his time. And when his dad, Hezekiah, died... Manasseh brought back all kinds of false gods. Manasseh brought back pagan worship. He again led Israel, led the people of God, the Israelites, into this worship that defiled. And I bring that up to mention that the church is to be protected with the spirit of Hezekiah. The church is going to be pure. The church is going to be protected when we have the same mindset as Hezekiah that we would obey God, even if someone's taking something good and turning it in, into an idol. Let's do away with that good thing because all we need is God. We don't need any graven images. We don't need any golden calves. We are to be holy in all of our conduct and have that same passion that Hezekiah had for Israel. 
In 1 Peter, again, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, that apostle says that we are to come to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, that is Jesus. And you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Did you know that with your life, you are offering spiritual sacrifices all the time? With the choices you make, the way that you go about living your life, you are making spiritual decisions nearly constantly. And the call of God from that passage here is that we are to offer acceptable sacrifices. We are to protect the priesthood of all believers that all people are able to go directly to God and to be holy in God. He has called us holy by calling us saints, and we are to have that position have bearing on our practice. As the temple of God, our sacrifices must be acceptable to God. Thus, we must safeguard against the poison of sin and the poison of apostasy. Before we get into the specific applications that I want to make today, I want you to consider 2 Timothy 3 about what Paul said concerning the times of the end. This is the last letter that Paul wrote. He wrote it to a young pastor and he said, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And here's the calling, avoid such men as these. That's a long list, isn't it? I think we're seeing that in our day, don't you? We have this kind of thing around us all of the time, and the opportunity for this to come into our lives personally or to come into the church is great. It's, it's, it's an amazingly high chance that this will happen, that you will encounter this type of defilement that can even come into the church and defile the bride of Christ. So we are to avoid such things. We are to be separate from such things. And emphasizing this, I'm kind of going to take a, a bit of a tangent before I come back to the point here. Emphasizing this separation is what makes us biblical fundamentalists, by the way. <laughs> that word fundamentalist carries a lot of baggage. So it's helpful to throw the adjective biblical in front of it. Biblical fundamentalist. And I need to explain what I mean because that is distinguished from general evangelicalism that exists. Okay? Biblical fundamentalism is different than general evangelicalism. The difference, really, at the end of the day between biblical fundamentalists and general evangelicalism is the willingness to separate over sin and false teaching. That's, at a baseline, that's what the difference is. There are many Christians out there who, on paper, we could agree with, but at the end of the day, many of them would not be willing to separate from sin or false teaching. And so, in this stream of thinking that we have, being separate from the world while we're in the world, it means that we must be engaged in progressive sanctification, both individually and as a church. 
And we must be willing to separate ourselves from every element of our lives that defiles us and causes us to separate from God. We must separate from that which would separate us from God. Now, fundamentalism, uh, you know, I'm just bringing this up as like a footnote, okay? It has a reputation of, of being legalistic, and that's a well-founded reputation, sadly. Uh, but we want to be biblical in our approach to this. We want to be biblical in our separating from that which defiles. There are some out there who would call themselves fundamentalists, who would use that title or use that theme or that spirit to make a list of things that you should stay away from. Maybe some of you were raised in traditions like that, where you were given a list of things you could wear, things you could listen to or not listen to, activities you could engage in, etc. And there are some people out there who want a list. There are some Christians out there who say, just give me the list of what I can do and what I can't do. God doesn't give you a list, okay? As, except for like general themes here of pursuing holiness and faith and love. But specific application takes discernment. It takes counsel. Biblical fundamentalism, biblical separation is not the same as man-made legalism. We have to reject man-made legalism because that's actually just further worldliness. But instead, we are commissioned to pursue holiness and the fear of the Lord and ask God to sort it out along the way, that the Spirit would lead us and guide us in this effort, that God's people would counsel us when we need help. But it all starts with the willingness to separate from evil and false teaching for the sake of walking more closely with God. And if you don't have that motivation and that desire, that's a bad sign. If you claim the name of Christ and you don't have the motivation to separate from the world, you're not going to grow in Jesus. You're not ultimately going to grow in sanctification. You're not going to be made more like your Savior but you'll just be entangled over and over again with the cares and the concerns of this world. Again, there's no list to hand you and say, this is what you avoid and this is what you do. But here's what I'm preaching to you right now. You have to be willing to disfellowship yourself from darkness. And that root runs deep, people. The effects of sin are all over and opportunities to sin abound. You must be willing to walk away from anything for the sake of Jesus Christ. And if that willingness isn't there, you will not grow. So let's talk about personal separation, about how we can care for God's temple day by day. First, considering our individual walk with the Lord, which is so important. On the one hand, in our individual walk, we are reaching forward to Christ. And on the other hand, we're stiff-arming evil. You could imagine it that way. We're pushing away that which defiles. And there are certain things in this life that we must reject as Christians. We cannot embrace all things. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, it says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. What a commission. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. We are not to participate in the deeds of darkness, but instead we are to call them what they are. We are to identify sin as sin. We are to identify falsehood as falsehood and to remain separate from such things. We are members of Christ. Those of us who are in Jesus by faith, we are one spirit with the Lord. And we are not to take the spirit of Christ in us and join that with sin. 
We are not to join Christ with idols or lies or anything that would defile. We are to remain separate. And so we push against evil on the one hand, but with the other we reach ahead toward holiness. While we expose the deeds of darkness, that we preach against sin, that we separate ourselves from worldliness, we must embrace what God has for us with the other hand. In 1 Timothy 6.11, Paul said, flee from these things. So that's the one hand. You're pushing away that which is evil. Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So with the one hand, you're pushing away. With the other, you're reaching ahead and pulling toward. In 2 Timothy 2.22, same theme, same author to the same recipient, flee from youthful lusts, push away that which is sinful, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And look at who you're doing this with, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You're, you're not doing this with unbelievers, are you? Unbelievers are not pursuing peace and love in God's terms. Unbelievers are not going to advance your sanctification as believers do. So let's talk about our relationships. I want to get, again, more specific with application, not just our personal living, but in our relationships, as Paul brought it up there and Paul brings it up in 2 Corinthians 6, that we are not to be bound together with unbelievers and we are to call upon the Lord with those who also call upon His name. Again, I want to share with you that quote I shared with you last week from Homer Kent about what these relationships are, what it means to be yoked with someone. Paul is warning his readers against forming the sort of binding relationships with unbelievers that would weaken their standards or compromise their ability to maintain a consistent witness. That's what we're talking about when we're saying we have to be separate. That's what we mean when we say we cannot be yoked together or bound with unbelievers. So when thinking about relationships, let's start with friendships. Friendships should be considered. There's that sweet verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, that says, bad company corrupts good morals. That's true, isn't it? Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, you might pause there and think, but wait a second, wasn't Jesus the friend of sinners? Now, how does that make sense? If bad company corrupts good morals, how was Jesus the friend of sinners? What kind of example was that? Well, number one, He's Jesus, okay? <laughs> so, His good morals will never be corrupted ever, so that's number one. But number two, when Paul is urging us to not be unequally yoked, he's not talking about mere socialization. He's not talking about socializing. That is not the problem. In fact, in that other letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 10, 27, Paul tells them to go dine with unbelievers. He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Socialization is not the problem here. You may go have a meal and be friends with those who are not believers. You need to, in fact. However, there is something restraining us here, and that, that is we cannot spiritually fellowship with an unbeliever, and we cannot endorse the sin of an unbeliever. You, you can't do that. You cannot be bound together with them in the sense that you 
spiritually fellowship with them or that you endorse them from a spiritual perspective. It simply cannot happen. Another passage from 1 Peter, a really great epistle, 1 Peter 4, verses 3 through 5, this was one of the very first passages I ever read as a Christian, and I thought, that makes so much sense. I was in high school at the time. It says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We cannot find fellowship, true fellowship, with unbelievers. It's just plain. They have different motivations. They have different lifestyle. They do not have faith driving their lives. And we cannot endorse their sinful ways. We live in an interesting nation that's in an interesting moment of decline. And of course, as Tyler mentioned at the beginning of the month, this is the month they've stolen and called it Pride Month. Um, even if we didn't talk about the homosexual aspect of it, the pride is sin enough, right? Uh, pride Month is bad enough as it is. But then when you add to it, this endorsement of not only homosexuality now, but also the mutilation of people's bodies, whether they're adults or children. I mean, it's just filth. It's gutter stuff, and it's wicked from the pit of hell. It's an abomination, and we have to be separate from it. But this is what you must understand here as a Christian living in this world at this time. It's never going to be enough for them until you endorse them. They want your full support. Those who practice evil and are pushing evil onto the society, they don't want you to say, live and let live, and then they'll be fine. That's not it. That used to be what they said. That's not it anymore. They want your full-throated support of their evil, wicked ways. And as a Christian, you can't do that. That option's not on the table. You, it, it's shameful to even speak of those deeds. Instead, we have to expose them. We have to call them what they are. We have to call satanic practices satanic practices. We have to call demonic self-destruction demonic self-destruction. We are not people who live in this world to endorse the world. That's not it. We are people who in this world, in our relationships, we seek peace with all men as far as it depends on us, but we never endorse evil. We don't spiritually fellowship with darkness because we are light. We can't do it. So go be friends. Go socialize. Go seek to win people to Jesus Christ no matter where they are, what they're doing. Yes to all of that. But don't ever trick yourself into thinking that you can endorse them at any level because it's never going to be enough. And Jesus has called you to be separate, to follow Him. And there's this natural tension in these relationships that we want to eliminate. I mean, maybe even me talking about it here this morning has made you a little uncomfortable. There's just this, this tension that can come up in our relationships if you've got a family member who is practicing a lifestyle that he or she knows you oppose. There's a lot of tension there. And I think in our flesh, we want to just get rid of that. We want to try to make relationships as comfortable as we can. And it's not just the LGBT movement that I brought up. It could be all sorts of things. It could be someone practicing a false religion. It could be someone who's a Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim that you know, anything like that. 
and we want to do away with that tension. But it cannot happen. In fact, it shouldn't happen. Let me read to you a couple of, uh, a couple of quotes. The second one's pretty punchy. The first one just sets you up for the second one, really. Um, Philip Hughes, in his commentary, says, Christians indeed, as our Lord taught, are the light of the world. This they cannot be if their light is hidden or withdrawn. Thus they are to let their light shine before men, though at the same time shunning the depravities of unregenerate society and of unchristian worship. That has to happen. You have to, you have to shun that. Okay, but now John MacArthur is about to punch you in the face, okay? John MacArthur says, The church's goal is not to make unbelievers feel comfortable and non-threatened. On the contrary, it is to make them feel uncomfortable with their sins and threatened by God's judgment and the terrors of hell that they face. It's a very potent statement, isn't it? But isn't it so true? And aren't you glad the person who led you to the Lord let you know about the judgments of God, let you know about the terrors of hell that you faced in that moment? So as we continue to consider our relationships, we must also think about marriage, not just friendships, but also marriage. And I know this is very sensitive. This can be very difficult to talk about. We have several in our fellowship here who are unequally yoked in marriage. And that's, you know, it's just a reality. 2 Corinthians 6, the end of 2 Corinthians 6, is a very instructive passage for Christians before they get married. This is a part of, should be a part of premarital counseling. Uh, And for you who are Christian parents raising Christian kids right now, make this a part of the way you're training your kids now. That they are not to be bound together with unbelievers. But if you're a Christian in that situation, if you are a Christian here today and you are unequally yoked in your marriage, you're, you're married to an unbeliever, the instruction that we have in the Bible is to remain. If that person your spouse consents to live with you, you remain. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that the house is made holy because of your presence there. And it really doesn't matter how you got there. If you married that person as a Christian, as an act of disobedience, you married an unbeliever, remain. If you married as two unbelievers and later down the road you you got saved, remain. That's the calling that's on Christians. But if you are a Christian looking to get into that situation, don't. Do not. Don't entertain the thought for a moment. Don't consider it as a possibility. Don't consider it as an option on the table. It's not. The most intimate fellowship you will ever have with another human being is in in marriage. If fellowship is to be protected, how much should marriages be protected? In 1 Corinthians 7, 39, Paul's talking to widows, and he says, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, with this caveat, only in the Lord. Christian marriages are to be Christian all the way, because that is the most intimate fellowship worth protecting. Now, the specific context of our passage, 2 Corinthians 6 doesn't necessarily have to do with personal separation, even though that's a part of it. I think ecclesiastical separation is really what's in view, and that's a big word that just means having to do with the church. Paul has in view here that the church would be separated from the world. So let's consider now as we finish this uh, sermon here how the temple 
of the corporate body of Christ is to remain separate. We've talked about how we individually are to remain separate, but now let's consider the church as a whole. First, let's think about in-house matters. This is the caring for the local church as elders and deacons are appointed in the local church to care for each individual local body, that we are to make sure that the church grows in holiness. It's the responsibility of the leadership to do that. The Corinthians We don't have the detail of what kind of leadership they had at that time, but Paul was calling on them, at least as a whole, if not the leadership specifically, to pursue holiness as a church. That comes up over and over again in his letters to them. But this, of course, involves church discipline. A person who is not submitting to the call to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord, as we see in 7.1. As we cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, Church discipline is something that exists in local churches for the sake of protecting the the purity of the church. Leaders are to remove those who will not seek to mature in holiness and instead live in sin. Now, I do want to clarify that when the apostle writes here, perfect holiness, he doesn't mean be perfect. That is not possible in this life. There is coming a day when you will be like Jesus and you'll be free from sin. We can hardly imagine it, right? It's just so foreign to us, but it's coming. Paul is not saying, learn to be perfect in the Lord. He is saying to mature, to perfect holiness in the Lord. There's a big difference. We're not seeking for perfection. We're not seeking alignment with man's standards. What we're seeking together as the church is to grow in righteousness as God's people. In 1 Corinthians 5 Paul wrote to them saying, there's a man among you who has his father's wife, his stepmom. There's a man among you who's dating his stepmom, and he's engaging in sexual immorality, and you've just entertained it. You've had him there. That church was to act, and Paul said, to remove the wicked man from among them. They were to perform that kind of a surgery, if you will, in the church in removing that kind of evil. But it's not just church discipline and dealing with things on an individual level. As we consider the purity of the local church, we also have to consider what that means for partnering with other churches or partnering with other organizations. There are all kinds of opportunities that churches have to partner with other churches and other organizations that we just have to pass on. I mean, so often we just have to say, no, that's it. I mean, I I did so just a few months ago. There was a man who came by and wanted to know if we'd be interested in an ecumenical service where you had people from all types of different faiths coming together for a music concert. Nope. No, not going to do that. Um, I cannot stand next to someone who defines the gospel differently, who defines God differently, who defines Jesus differently, who defines man differently, who defines sin differently, and pretend like we're in unity. I, I can't do that. This church won't do that. Okay, As long as Tyler and I are here anyway, this church won't do that. All right, we, we won't let that happen. We, we cannot compromise our standards. And so that's more in-house type stuff, more day-to-day stuff. But there's also bigger picture stuff when it comes to the local church. What does it mean to not be unequally yoked as a church, even in bigger picture matters? Well, the leadership has to keep the gate so that no unclean thing creeps in. And that can be people who come in and want to dominate the church fellowship. I think that's what happened in Corinth. That could be people who visit and kind of make themselves welcome. And next thing you know, they're causing a big division in the church. False teachers, false apostles. It could also be, though, 
not with someone here in person, but someone who's influential online, someone who's influential with books, someone who's winning over people's ears by teaching something that they want to hear instead of something that they need to hear, someone who scratches the itching ears as a false teacher of this day instead of someone who is promoting biblical truths. That creeps in in so many different ways. There are so many opportunities to have a Bible study with a DVD or something that comes from a false teacher, that comes from somebody who is disqualified from teaching the Word of God. And this is not only with doctrine, though that is with doctrine, but it's also with character. There can be someone out there who maybe has really good teaching on paper, it all seems really good, but this person has disqualified himself in his character by the way that he's lived his life. And there are a couple of really just right on the surface modern examples from recent times. Well, I mean, one's really recent. Just this past week, the Southern Baptists lived up to their name and they convened and they officially removed Rick Warren's church, Saddleback Church, from the Southern Baptist Convention because of how he's gone astray doctrinally. It was a doctrinal issue. It wasn't a character issue. It wasn't uh, caught in a sin issue. It was a doctrinal issue. But one of the largest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention was just removed because of bad teaching. But then also, maybe you remember the name James McDonald. Walk in the Word, that program, he was based out of Chicago. Um, I used to listen to him a lot. He has disqualified himself completely from ministry, not because of doctrine at all, but because of the way he's conducted his life. And it's actually extremely sad if you've stayed up to date with his stuff. I mean, it's, his life has turned really, really poor. And so I use them, I feel like I can use them because they're public names and they're very public situations. I'm not like dishing dirt on anybody. But that's the kind of thing I'm talking about here, is the local church has to remain pure whether someone's a false teacher in doctrine or a false teacher because of his character. The church has to be protected and the elders, the deacons, the influential men must be the gatekeepers of the church. We have to be aware of their materials not to give a false teacher or at least a foolish teacher influence in our churches. That influence cannot exist over the sheep, over God's sheep. In fact, it was interesting this morning as I was reviewing my notes, standing right here, going over my sermon, as I was reading that line, there was a song that was playing. I like to play music in the morning. There was a song that was playing by a guy who used to write really good Christian songs, but now he's an apostate. And actually, we sing a couple of his songs still in this church. Now, we've made that decision because you don't know who I'm talking about, and he doesn't have any influence over you, okay? Now, if he started to have influence, then that's a different conversation. But that's the reality. There are hymns we turn to in our hymnal. Some of those men who wrote those hymns, or women, by the end of their lives, they were a total train wreck. The guy who wrote uh, uh, It Is Well With My Soul, don't look into that one, okay? Now you will, okay? Okay. <clears throat> But, but it is a, just a sad reality that we have all this media, whether it's teachers with their teaching or musicians with their writing, whatever it is, there are all these opportunities for influence to come in, and we have to be discerning in the church because we don't want any false teaching to get a foothold among God's church. We don't want anybody to be led astray. We know that Satan goes after marriages, and one of those marriages that he goes after is Christ and his bride. We have to protect the bride of Jesus Christ. Again, John MacArthur, in his commentary, he writes, Satan does not want to fight the church as much as join it. 
When he comes against the church, it grows stronger. When he joins with the church, it grows weaker. Undiscerning believers who join in a common spiritual cause with unbiblical forms of Christianity or other false religions open the door wide to satanic infiltration and forfeit the blessing of God. Further, embracing those heretical systems falsely reassures their followers that all is well between them and God when actually they are headed for eternal damnation. Well, in addition to watching out for false teachers, we have to guard against false or destructive motivations and desires. So that's what I'll finish with today. These worldly pulls that exist that distract us from godliness, that distract us from the mission of the church to grow in holiness while reaching the world. And it's so often a slow fade when we talk about distractions, when we talk about those pulls of worldly motivations. It's a slow fade in the church. Every flood begins with a sprinkle, you know. Uh, just this week, we got that really hard rain one of those days this week. And I was sitting out here on the bench uh, under the overhang, and it just started with the sprinkle. And a few minutes later, the gutters were overflowing. I mean, it was like, let's build an ark. It's getting bad. Uh, it, was, it was crazy. But it started with a sprinkle. And again, Proverbs 22.3 that I shared with you last week, the prudent sees the evil and hides himself. So in the church... Once we start feeling the sprinkle of evil, of false motivations, we need to separate ourselves. And pride is at the root of this. I'll give a, a couple of specific examples in a moment, but pride is at the root. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, talks about this pride saying, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. What a command. Do not love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. We must take care to separate ourselves from this basic vice of worldly pride and loving the world. So what's the worldliness that creeps into the church? Let me just give you two examples. One is performance. They both start with P, so you can remember these. One is performance. And this can look like legalism, which is so interesting because legalism markets itself as a way to separate from the world, when actually legalism is just more worldliness. It's, hey, here are these rules that you're supposed to follow that I, a creature, have come up with and I've pulled from my own discernment here in the world. It's more worldliness. There's also fear of man. That creeps into the church, um, making decisions in life based on what, how other people will react, living not from a fear of God, that's how we perfect holiness, 2 Corinthians 7.1, but instead of perfecting holiness, it's fearing man. There's also, in this performance realm, pragmatism, just total, utter pragmatism in the churches, where instead of making conviction-based decisions from the Word of God. Churches can make their decisions based on what brings in the most money. Churches can make their decisions in what will get them the best press from the community around them. Churches will just make decisions on all kinds of pragmatic reasons instead of a, conviction way, a convictional way of reasoning based on the Word of God. It was Charles Spurgeon who once said that there will come a day when instead of churches full of sh shepherds feeding the sheep, we're going to have churches full of clowns entertaining the goats. 
And I think we see a lot of that today, but we're only going to see more and more as churches give way to worldly performance. But let me give you a second way that we can be distracted with the things of this world as a church, and that's politics. Not just performance, but politics. The mission of the church is not to make America a Christian nation. Now, for some people, that's like a controversial statement. But I'm just telling you now, as your friend, that is not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to be salt and light to the world. The mission of the church is not to save any one particular country. But we are to be salt and light. We must care more about purity of the church than the conservative platform of the next presidential candidate. Now, if you have energy left over, that's fine, all well and good. You know, go be involved in in politics, but take the Lord with you, take wisdom with you when you do it. But your priority, what comes first, is the purity of the church, the cares and concerns of God's family. That must come first. Otherwise, you will be distracted from that priority by chasing after something else. And in America, especially today, you can get so stinking distracted by the headlines about who's going to be the next dude in charge that's going to disappoint us in some other way. Because that's where it all goes, doesn't it? Disappointment. We're waiting for the king of kings. We're waiting for the president of presidents to show up, the one who is ultimately in charge. And in that day, earth and heaven will be one. Until then... We are salt and light in the world, and we are to pursue God by pursuing holiness in the church and reaching the world with the gospel. So we care about honoring Christ. We care for His bride. We know that Christ cares about His bride, and we know that means that she's worth it. Separation is a reality. It's something that just has to happen as Christians who care about holiness, and that's the commission we've been given. Let's pray. God, we again thank you for this day that you've made, this day you've given us, and this charge that you've laid before us in your word. Help us, Lord, to make specific application in our lives personally to separate from the world where we need to, that we would be separated to you, that we would be closer to you, that we would separate from anything that separates us from you, and that we would, day by day, grow in our faith and be drawn nearer to you. Lord, we ask that you would help us to make those decisions by giving us wise counsel among ourselves, that we would help one another in this effort, and that you would be pleased with the decisions that we make for your glory. You've told us to seek what is pleasing to you, and that's what we want. Help us to honor you rightly in the way that we live, and help us to always remember the foundation for all of this, and it's that you have called us your children. You have made us your temple, and we have this amazing privilege that we would make a difference for you in the world. And we ask that you would help us in this. In Jesus' name, amen.